Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Well, good morning to you all. If we've not met, my name's Josh. I'm the pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church and also out at Sandy Creek and Williamstown Uniting Churches as well. And it's a privilege to be able to bring you the word. And I want to echo the welcome you've received. If you're new or if you're visiting uh, here with us for the first time, it's wonderful that you could join us. Uh, You're welcome to uh, scan the QR code on the back of the seats if if you'd like to give us some of your details. We'd love to connect with you, let you know more of what we do as a church. Uh, it's, but it's just an awesome thing to be able to begin our week worshipping our Heavenly Father. So we're going to um, begin our time together in the Word with a, a little prayer. So why don't, why don't you join me in a, in a short prayer? Loving and gracious God, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for the way that it speaks into our lives. And as we have a look deeper into it and to see something that you would seek to share with us today, would have us know about what it means to follow you. Lord, would you give us the grace to receive what you have for us and the courage to live it out. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as Eloise mentioned this morning, we are uh, working our way through a series uh, that we're going to do for this uh, season of Lent, which uh, if you're not familiar with, that's the, the weeks leading up to Easter. And we're going to be looking at our core values. And core values are the things that we as a church have decided are going to define the way that we are together. Because there's all sorts of different ways that we can gather. There's all sorts of different ways that we can behave. But we, we really felt that as a church, we are called to look radically different to the culture around us. The vision that that Jesus gives us of Christian community is one that needs to be different to the culture around us, to the way that the rhythms of the world, if I were to put it that way. And so, over the next five weeks, we're looking at these five cultural values. I'm hoping that if you if you call this place home, I'm hoping that these aren't news to you, that they're not new. At the very least, the banner up to my right, your left, up there, has all five of them. They're written on the big orange wall in the hall next door, which, like anything, you know, you see it half a dozen times and then it becomes part of the background radiation of life. But I want you to look at them afresh over these next few weeks and thinking about how are they shaping your personal journey. And so whether you are new here or whether you've been here a long time, I'm grateful for this time because... Refreshment is good. We always need to be reminded of the things that are important. But also, it's such a great thing if you're new or visiting because it gives you a snapshot of what it is that we say is important about our community of faith. And so this morning, I want to talk with you about authentic community. Authentic community. What does that mean? 
Well, authentic, quite simply, is being real. It's being genuine. It's being the same inside as you are on the outside. Some people, it's probably integrity would be a similar way to describe it. It's the idea of being consistent everywhere that you are, being the same as you are at work, that you are at home, the same as you are in church, as you are on the way to church with your children, the same as you are getting your kids ready for bed, as you are, you know, at any other time, which I've got to be honest, sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm the same person in those moments. If I, to be authentic with you, I had a moment sitting at dinner Thursday night with our family that I had a, a parenting moment I wasn't particularly proud of. And that's a reality. That's authenticity. That's what it means to be real. And so that's the, the, what it means to be authentic. And so what is community then? Well, community quite simply is the gathering of people. That you and I, as a gathering of people, is community. Your street is a community. Your family is a community. Anywhere that two or three or more people gather, that is a, an expression of community. And so we cram those two things together as a core value. And what do we get? We get a group of people that are real. Really real. Not just surface level real, but genuine. They have a level of integrity, a consistency about their behavior, and that they don't feel like they need to hide anything about the way that things really are. And now I wonder, do you have that experience of community anywhere in your life? A place that you can be who you are, really. Because one of the biggest challenges of our culture at the moment is that many people don't have a place like that. Many people struggle to find a place where they can be authentically themselves, but let me qualify that. Authentically themselves and called to that which is better. Because it's one, it's one thing for us as a community to just be present, a person to just be present and say, accept me as I am, I am, I am fine, you just need to accept me. It's something very different to be real with people around you and acknowledge the places that you're still left yet to grow. And that's where, with the rest of our time together, I want to take us for a little while. As I mentioned before, for many of us and many people in our culture, perhaps even more so since COVID was a thing, which is hard to think that, what's, what's the date today? 26th of February. So in two weeks' time, it will be three years since COVID first graced or impacted our community specifically. We actually closed our service three years ago in two weeks' time. That's a sobering reality right there, isn't it? Wow, how much time has flown. But it's... The reality I want to share with you, this challenge for community is something that has existed long, long, long before that, but is perhaps compounded over recent years. S studies have explored this idea, uh, this phenomenon of uh, the lack of, or the need for connection within our broader society. We're finding more and more people, peer, people doing peer-reviewed 
studies about the reality of loneliness within our community. Forbes magazine in 2009, which was a little while ago now, published an article around loneliness, human nature and the need for social connection. And the primary point of the article was that you and I are actually genetically designed. We are genetically designed to thrive through meaningful social connection. That's, the, that's a reality. And then there's, there's an article published uh, the Public Library of Science around social relationship and the, mort- and the risk to our mortality. And the thesis of that, uh, that article, and it's an article that keeps getting referenced in social commentary at the moment, and I'm doing it as well, the reality and, and, and the, the point that they come across with is that loneliness and the lack of meaningful social community connection, not just social connection, meaningful social community and connection, the lack of that, and I've talked about this a couple of years ago as well, the lack of that is actually equal to, so it's as, as dangerous to your health, social isolation is as dangerous to your health as smoking a pack a day or excessive alcohol consumption and destroying your liver. A couple of bottles a day, bottles of wine a, a day. Now we live on the edge of the Barossa, so I'm not against the bottle of wine. I'm, I'm not a big fan of cigarettes, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's sobering, because it's socially acceptable now to critique things like cigarettes. It is. I mean, you, you can't smoke basically anywhere, inside anywhere these days. And that's probably a good thing for the, the, the social health of people around you in that regard. But it's sobering to think that the idea of social isolation is as damaging, if not more so, to your health than smoking a pack a day. Yet we're okay. It doesn't seem to be getting talked about that much. And it's actually social isolation is more dangerous to your health than morbid obesity and more dangerous than lack of exercise. The people will have a higher chance of going to an early death by being socially isolated only than being morbidly obese, eating way too much food, or never exercising. That's a, that's a sobering reality. So I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. That as we talk about this value of authentic community, what we need to realize is the science, the observation of the way that the world has been created by God. That's what science is. Science is the observation of the world. Science doesn't offer why for anything. It offers a lot of how, but rarely does it offer a why. It's an observation, something that proves certain things to be true. Science tells us that you and I are actually genetically created for community. But then we can't just stay at the science, do we? We're a church, so, let, so we know that there's a theology around it. And Scripture tells us that we were also designed for community. We're told that we're made in the image of God. And what is God? We believe God is a triune God. That God is three beings in one. Now, that's a mystery and a, a thing for another day. But we believe that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three beings in perfect relationship, in perfect community with one another. And that you and I, as human beings, Genesis 1, 27 teaches us that we were created in the image of God. 
God says, let us make mankind in our image. Not in my image, but in our image. So there's something within the very essence of our creation, as far as Scripture teaches us, that tells us that we were designed for community. And so that's the first reality I need us to understand, is that we are designed for community. But the second reality is that within our broader culture, our culture is failing to deliver that sense of community for us. And the term that we use for this idea of increasing social isolation, increasingly not engaging in community, but, it, but doing our own thing in our own way, in our own sort of idea, is an idea called social atomization. I've talked about it before, but it's this idea that no longer is the family, the broader family unit, the building block of our, of our culture anymore. Instead, it is us, you and me. It's born in the phrase, you do you, and I'll do me, and everything will be fine. Gone are the days, really, where the social we were socially structured by the family unit. How for, and, and I think we can relate to that. Anyone a grandparent or a great-grandparent in the room? Anyone got great-grandkids or grandkids? How often do you see them? Heaps, great. But I've got to tell you, there's a far, far more shaking heads in the room. That, friends, is a is a symptom of this thing that we're talking about, of the, the, the move away from family and social connection in that way to this, I'll just do our own thing in our own way, and we suffer for it. So that's, that's a part of it. But, and I suppose the other part of that that you might see in your broader community is that you don't know your neighbours as well as you once did. Some people don't know their neighbours at all. Most of us drive, we go to work, we open our garage door, we go to work, we come home, we close the garage door, and we go and watch Netflix, or have dinner with our own family, like our own family, tiny family unit, or whatever, and most of us don't know anything about our neighbourhood. And in Australia, the biggest indicator of that is involvement in social, um, social uh, organisations. Neighbourhood Watch, Lions Club, Rotary, the church was a huge social organisation back in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Quite separate to the religion side of things, it was a social engagement thing. That as of 2016, and it's now higher um, <laughs> since the most recent census, but the data hasn't quite been finalised yet, 76% of people alive and active in the community now have never been involved in a community organisation. 76% of people have decided that they have no interest in getting engaged in something outside the horizon of their own concerns. I can see some faces shocked about that. Only eight, uh, 15 people, 15% of people have recently given up on it, and 8% of people are actively involved somewhere. Only 8%. And you think of the fraction of that that is the church now, how far we have come. But they, 
there is a why attached to this, and studies seem to suggest that 37% of people say it's due to regular work commitments, more than half it's due to family, more than about 46% say they don't like people, they don't like joining groups, it's too real, 60% of people are just not interested in joining things, they just rather do life in their own pace, in their own way. And 64% of people, and don't miss this one, 64% of people don't believe community organizations add value, that they're even good. Now, that's not just talk, that's not singling out the church or anything like that. They just don't believe that community organizations add value to their life anymore. Friends, that is a problem. Two-thirds. And so, what's the result of these things? Us being wired for community and us not being able to find community results in two things, a radical increase in loneliness-related death in our community and a radical increase in mental health problems because of social isolation. We see those things. This is not news. We know it, but sometimes we forget it. But the reality is there, and I would argue that the primary reason is that we have forgotten that we were created for community. And that as the church moves to the, to the periphery, or as now it is, on the periphery of culture, we lose the identity of social connection that we were created for. And so the reason we have this as a core value is because we believe that this matters. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is to just offer some scripture or perspective to this. I know you're all depressed now. You're like, welcome to church, Josh. Thanks very much for giving us some encouragement. But I want to spend just a few minutes in Scripture to, having a look at the picture that we are given of the early church. Now, for many of us, the, the picture of the early church begins in Acts chapter 2. It's the one that most Christians talk about when they think of what does a perfect, authentic, real, and genuine community look like? And in Acts chapter 2, we read this. We read, and they, that is the disciples, this is after, straight after Pentecost, straight after the, the first big church service, they devoted themselves, that is the community of faith, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they held everything in common. They sold property and possessions. Why? To give to anyone that had need. Now, that's a vision of community, isn't it? Every day, they continued. Every day. Not some days, not once a week. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. What a picture. What a God-given picture of community, of what the church is meant to be like, what those early believers participated in. And I hear lots of people as, as Christians go, why can't the church be like that again? 
And maybe some of you in more recent years, like in the last 40, 50 years, would have experienced that, an expression of church like that in some way. And the question always becomes, if church is not like that now, why can't it be like that again? Even in our culture here in Australia, this, the 70s and 80s, the, the, um, the resurgence of Christian faith, the, the sort of the mini revival stuff that was happening and, and the renewal that many of you were a part of. The charismatic renewal, they call it here in Australia. Some would say there was a vision and a picture of community like that, but where did it go? Where did it go? Because we're still the church and Jesus is still Lord. So what happened? Why isn't our expression of Christian community like that very often at all? And as I was reading and reflecting on this and thinking, what is it that God's calling me to challenge us about in this idea of authentic community? He took me back to Jesus' call to the disciples, to the very places where He first met His followers and called them to follow Him. Because what is the church? The church is people, right? It's not this building, it's not that organ, it's not the projector screens or anything like that. The church is the people, and it's a people that have decided to follow Jesus. It's not a complicated question, that's right. Decided to follow Jesus. And as we look, I think we can learn a couple of things as we look back at the first people that decided to follow Jesus. Join with me back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls His first disciples, it should be up on the screen hopefully, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew, they were casting nets into the lake, and, for they were fishermen, and He said, come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people, and that's not using a fishing rod with hooks, that'd, that'd be weird. He's talking about, I'll teach you, I will recapture this gift you have for drawing things to you. I'll recapture that and give you a new purpose. And at once they left their nets and followed Him. Now going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the sons of thunder. And they were in their their boat with their father, doing going about their trade. They were preparing their nets, and Jesus called them immediately, and they left the boat and their father, don't miss that, they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus. Two moments in time, where Jesus begins calling the people that He would ultimately use to build His church. And what does He do? He calls them from what they were doing. He calls them from what they knew. He calls them from where they were, and He invites them to follow Him into something new, something different, something they hadn't done before. They knew how to fish, but they didn't know how to follow a rabbi. They'd already flunked out of rabbi school. Every Jewish Jewish boy went to rabbi school, and if they were fishing, they weren't rabbiing because they already failed at school. They were off to, to, to journey with their, with their father, with their parents, learn the trade of their family. 
So they'd already flunked out. They'd already, they, so they knew how to fish. They didn't know how to do this. But Jesus calls them anyway. So what did we learn? We've learned that community is driven by commitment. And then turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. And Jesus saw the crowd around him, and he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you. Here's our word, follow. I will follow you. I will learn from you. I'll be your apprentice, your disciple. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies to them, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's a strange statement. What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, when we look at Jesus' ministry, Jesus didn't have a home. He didn't stay anywhere. He was what we call an itinerant rabbi, itinerant preacher. He just traveled around, took up the hospitality of those that offered it to him, and he just taught the people wherever he went. And so when, when this guy rocks up and says, look, I know the law, I know what's going on, I know what's up, I, I want to follow you, I think I can do this community thing. Jesus says, all right, well, you, if you say you want to follow me, you need to actually follow me. It might not look the way that you think it does, because we're going to move around, we're going to do stuff. And then another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. I've got a funeral to conduct. Now, some scholars suggest that his father wasn't yet dead and that this was a figure of speech of, once my family estate is in order, then I will come and follow you. Now, I don't know. I'm, I wasn't there. All I can tell you is what it says. I just got to go bury my father. I got to go take care of some stuff and then I will follow you. But Jesus told him, no, no, no. You follow me now and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, it seems kind of insensitive. What do you mean, Jesus? You won't let this guy go and do a funeral for his father? He won't square away his estate? Won't do that, all, all that sort of stuff? But what I think we need to learn, what, what we need to, to discover out of this passage is that following Jesus will cost us something. That when we choose to follow, when we choose to be the church, when we choose to be the people that Jesus calls to follow Him. It's going to cost us something. It's going to look more like what He is doing than it is what we are doing. It's going to look more like what He requires of us than what we think it's going to be like. And then follow with me as we jump ahead again to verse 20. No, sorry, chapter 20 starting in verse 20. Two disciples, actually no, not two disciples, their mum come and have a conversation, comes and has a conversation with Jesus. I wonder, I mean granted these, these guys would have been 16, 17 years of age, so to be honest at that age, thank you. Not quite sure what happened there, that's all right. So, 16, 17 years of age, legally, probably for most of us, our mum still speaks for us. But let's be honest, I started work at 15, work for Barlow, it's now Coles, 
Bilo's long gone. I've got to tell you, if I um, was to get my mum to come and talk to my boss about what I wanted, how do you reckon that would go? What a ridiculous suggestion. Ridiculous suggestion. In fact, whatever. Anyway, it seems so crazy, but that's exactly what kind of what happens here. The sons of thunder get their mum to come and ask Jesus something. They, They kneel down. At least they're there with her sons and kneeling down. Mum, for some extra clout, ask a favor of Jesus. What is it that you want? He asked them. And she said, getting nudged by her sons, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus looks at her. I've got to, got to acknowledge he's, lo- he's loving and gracious in his response. He says, you don't really know what you're asking of me. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And Jesus uses the cup is, the, is a term, it's a metaphor for suffering that he's about to endure. Can you endure the suffering that I am about to endure? And they said, we can. And they did. For both these two sons of thunder, James and John, were both executed for their faith early in the first century, not too long after Jesus himself was killed. He says, he said to them, you will drink the cup. But to sit at my right or to my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten overheard about the conversation, because they were obviously around, but they hadn't heard it yet. When they overheard it, they were indignant, upset, they were annoyed. And Jesus called them together. He called them together and he said this. He said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So they, they use their power for their own advantage. And the high officials exercise authority over those over whom they've got dominion. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, James, John, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be the last, must be a slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a picture of community. Not only do we have this call up from Jesus' followers to actually come and follow, to give up what you know, to give up what's comfortable, and to come and follow, we get a picture that this community is going to be radically different to every other expression of culture that the world has ever known. That there is a vision that Jesus puts before his followers and embodies by being a servant, by giving his life on a cross, by laying down his life for his friends. He teaches a vision of community that is radically different to the world around it. One where people don't power up 
and use their authority to get what they want, but instead, they use their authority, their power, their significance, the things that they have for the sake of those around them. Friends, when Jesus calls his followers to community, it's a radically different type of community. And to illustrate this in in one further way, I want you to think about the disciples, on who they were. Jesus, it it seems a little bit easier for us to put ourselves into the story of the Scriptures and the people that we are in community with, the people around us, the people that we know, the people that we like, the people that are like us in many ways. It's super easy for us to put ourselves into the story of the disciples and forget what they were really like. Because think about who it is that Jesus called. He called some fishermen. Do you know who else he called? He called a tax collector. In the, we've talked about this before. Tax collectors were traitors to the Jewish people. They were in the employ of the Roman Empire. They, they took taxes on behalf of Rome, and they made their wealth by jacking the price of the taxes. So they were rich, wealthy people, despised by the locals. And Jesus walks up to Matthew's tax-gathering booth. You know the story. And he says, follow me. And, he go, and Matthew goes, all right. And so suddenly, and Jesus has gone, do you have to call, the disciples have been gone, Jesus, did you have to call him? Really? Matthew? There were three guys standing next to him, they were about to pay their taxes, you could have called some of them, but you had to call Matthew. We don't like Matthew. We don't like Matthew's friends. Did you have to call Matthew? But who else did Jesus call? He called a doctor, and he called someone named Simon, but not Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot. What were the Zealots? The Zealots were domestic terrorists, insurrectionists, people that were violently opposing the rule of Rome, Roman occupation, and they did it by executing Roman soldiers terrorizing Roman, set, Roman um, garrisons. They, they tried to fight for their political freedom with violence. And so in Jesus' group, you've got a violent insurrectionist and you've got someone in the employment of Rome. That's about as far on the political spectrum as you can get in terms of social structure. Now, there's a whole bunch of other polarities within the makeup of the disciples that you could have a look at if we've got time for another day. But just picture that. If we were to throw that into our political landscape, what would it be? Far left and far right? Or it could be any other polarity that you could possibly think of. A murderer and a police officer. I don't know, what could you think of? You can think about what it is that Jesus is asking. He's not just asking a bunch of people who are like one another to get along. 
He calls people from radically different places with radically different experiences and radically different worldviews to follow him. And not only that, he calls them to give up what they were doing before, to become a new type of community. And not only that, he tells them that they need to serve one another just as he is about to show them that he will serve them. Friends, that is the vision of community that Jesus puts before us in this moment as the church. And if we look back to that Acts 2 vision of church, a radically transformative version where people are being saved every single day, we lose sight. We like the Acts 2 bit, but we lose sight of the, ma- of the picture of the disciples in Matthew that it was upon this radical vision of community that that radical transformation was formed. It was a picture of people gathered together that are not like one another, choosing to love because it's the way forward, choosing to love because of who they chose to follow despite the differences that they have. And friends, I believe If we are to capture the vision of a radically transformative community whereby God's grace daily people, God is adding to our number, those that are being saved. If we are to be that community, we need to look a whole lot more like and get real with and understand the radical calling of Jesus into community. One that doesn't look like our comfort, one that doesn't look like what we previously know, and one that has weird people that are not like us in it. Friends, I believe that's what authentic, the, the, the biblical vision of authentic community looks like. It's not hanging out with people that you like, although that can be a good thing. It's about hanging out with people that have also decided to follow Jesus, and then following Jesus together warts and all, following Jesus together through the brokenness of your life, because Christianity is not a beautiful thing for beautiful people. It is a broken group of people acknowledging the grace and love of Jesus Christ at work in their life. That is Christian community. And so the calling upon us as a church, the only way that we will fight the pull of our culture to radical individualism is to choose something different. And I believe the calling is authentic, real, genuine, integrated community. Now, I can tell you all agree with me, so that's a good thing. So, what do we do about it? Like, how do we live this out? Well, we know we've got life groups, and I know you knew I was going to say it, Because I think that life groups is one of the most transformative things that we can be a part of. Because it's a bunch of people that have agreed to follow Jesus together. We don't always like each other. We don't always agree with each other. But we've agreed to love each other. And if you're not yet a part of a life group or some form of it, then I invite you to to jump into it. Give it a go. Scan the QR code on the back and fill it out online and get into a community group. You can join Glenda's group. I'd love to see you all there. If you've got nothing else planned this afternoon, now you do. You're going to learn about the Sabbath here at church. You don't even have to go anywhere. And you were promised lunch. We might see a bread and fishes situation there if there's too many people rock up. We'll pray over that and see what, see what God does. 
it's not hard. It's not complicated, but it can be hard work. But I believe, and those that are part of my life group and Bev's life group and, and Chris's life group on a Wednesday, we will all tell you to a person that it is worth it. And it helps us combat the pull of our culture to do our own thing in our own way and find a better rhythm of life, a life-giving rhythm of life. And one would argue, you know, if I'm going to be honest, the proof is in the pudding so far, a longer life, because I'm going to live forever, so far so good. But you know, do you know what I mean? Like, there's a vision there, and it's important. So we're going to be a church that is about authentic, transformative community that follows Jesus. Not because we like each other, necessarily. Although that might, that's a good thing, it helps. But will we choose to love each other and be with one another? And it might be that a life group is not where you're at. But I can guarantee you there are two or three people that you could gather with in, your, in the um, area where you live. Or after church here on, on a Sunday, just around coffee. And rather than just talk about the weather and the football and, and that sort of thing, ask someone, hey, how was, how'd you go following Jesus this week? I dare you to ask someone, hey, where, what's a sin you're not proud of that you, that you did this week? Is there something you need to talk through? You should probably do that with someone that you at least know. But when was the last time you had a real conversation like that? That stuff transforms the heart. That stuff transforms us. That stuff renews our mind. And I believe that's a significant step to us being the sort of community that brings transformation around us, within us, and helps us recapture in just a small way that Acts 2 vision of a church radically sold out to one another and the vision that God has called them to. I want to be that sort of church. And I think you do too. Imagine what we could do if we lived out this vision together. So let's take, some authentic, let's take community seriously. Figure out what authenticity of community looks like and have the courage to take a step knowing that it'll be inconvenient like Jesus said it would. It'll be something you haven't really done much before, like Jesus said it would. And it'll be with a bunch of people that you might be a little weird, like Jesus' gathering was. And I believe that is what will make all the difference. Let's pray together, church. Loving and gracious God, I thank you for the gift of community, for the gift of your grace. And Lord, if I'm honest, this is a high bar. Gathering in a life group every week, setting aside one whole seventh of the nights of the week for something like this seems too far sometimes. But Lord, you, you tell us that community is worth it. What it means to follow you will look different to what's comfortable. So Lord, would you give us the grace to receive this in the way that you're calling us to? that your picture of community is one that is very different to the world around us. 
And Lord, I'm convinced through the way that you've wired us and the way that the science is starting to show us is that we can't do life alone. We weren't created to do it alone. And when we try, it eats us alive. Lord, that's not the vision of life you've given us, that you call us to. So help us as your church to live out radically a transformed vision of community that's authentic, that's real, that's willing to to get alongside one another and do life through not just the good stuff, but the hard stuff. That we might rediscover as your church radical effectiveness of being able to proclaim the gospel to a community that desperately needs to hear it. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of life that we have received. Help us to live it. In your name we pray. Amen.